You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Hunting Gear Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we're going to be talking with Bill Thompson of Spartan Forge. Now, if you're not familiar with Spartan Forge, it is a mobile hunting app that you can download to your phone. They also um, have desktop availability, but um, man... We, we talk a lot about technology today. We talk about algorithms. We talk about collared deer studies. We talk about 3D map imagery. And just like, it, it's crazy where hunting technology has gone in the last several years. Because I can remember before cell phones, before internet, before even trail cameras were out, I would just go into the woods and hunt. And now it seems like if you're not taking uh, some type of uh, some device with you that has that I would use the word technology that is technology uh, like like a digital technology like uh, a computer program or something like that then you're lost right um, I, I I use HuntStand right now and uh, I just imagine what you take you take those mobile apps away from me and having to go back to the old printed maps or the old plat uh, books and what that would be like in order like it would be absolutely crazy and so uh, the industry has changed the technology has changed and um, some say it's for the better some people don't like it but uh, today we get into a really detailed conversation with uh, with Bill about Spartan Forge, um, how he kind of came up with some of the stuff that he's come up with, the advancements that the app has made over the, uh, the last couple years, um, how all of that, uh, all, the, all the data that he collects translates into uh, information given to the end user on what days uh, hunt. If you're not familiar, with uh, Spartan Forge it is a predictive deer hunting, a predictive deer movement uh, 
platform that tells you basically in your area what days are going to be the best to hunt given you know collared deer study data given uh, weather uh, how imp- uh, weather impacts deer movement historical data like that and so it's a really interesting episode and i'm sure if you guys are uh, deer nuts you know this isn't a hundred percent gear talk because we also get into things like what drives uh certain aspects like humidity and and precipitation and how that affects deer in different parts of the country so it's a fun episode i always like talking with guys like bill who are extremely intelligent and uh even at the beginning of the episode we get a little background in into bill uh and his time spent in the military uh, doing whatever it is he was doing in the military so it's it's a pretty interesting episode i know you guys will like it Before we get into today's episode, though, I do have to send a shout out to the people who make this podcast possible. If you guys are looking for a saddle, and I know that this year I'm going to be taking, uh, I'm going to be taking a couple more, what I would say, less spot and stock, more tree stand hunts, and so I'm getting ready to, uh, I'm getting ready, and I'm excited to use a saddle more this year. Uh, So if you're looking for a saddle, saddle hunting accessories, platforms, climbing sticks, you name it, go check out Tethered. If you are looking to document your hunts, then I strongly suggest you go check out Tacticam. Uh, The Tacticam has the new 6.0 version currently out. It has image stabilization. It has an LCD screen. It records in 4K. It can be mounted to your bow. It can be mounted to your gun. And that way you can record uh, what you see out in the woods. And then you can come home, show the wife, show the kids, show your buddies, Uh, even helps with shot placement. If you're unsure about where you shot a deer, let's say you can take it home, throw it in your computer, review the footage, and then that'll tell you if you need to wait or go after the deer. So um, uh, hunt stand is the next one. Let's see, Tacticam and then Hunt Stand. Uh, if you're looking for, you know, today we talk a lot about uh, mobile apps. So if you are looking for uh, a mobile hunting app, if you're a hardcore deer hunter, uh, go check out HuntStand. HuntStand um, has a lot of functionality behind it. HuntStand uh, has is is the most one of the most popular apps on the market for a reason, and it's just because it gives you a lot of options. And while you're at HuntStand.com, read up on all that functionality, and then also read up on their Pro Whitetail platform that they've just. Um, I guess introduced over the last year it's pretty it's pretty intriguing so go check that out huntstand.com uh and that's it uh the other thing i want to say real quick is we 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 do a lot of talking about gear on this podcast very little talk about conservation so if you are looking to give back in 2023 just i'm not going to sit here and try to pitch it go look at fishandwildlife.org and in the conservation the conservation organization, two percent for conservation. Uh, go go check that out. See what they're all about. And if you want to get two percent for conservation certified, go check that that website out. So we're done with the intro. Let's just get into today's episode with Bill Thompson of Thompson or Thomas. No, I messed it up. Either way, uh, I apologize. Bill from Spartan Forge. All right, from Spartan Forge, I have Bill Thompson on the show today. Bill, what's up, man? Not much, Dan. How are you? Doing good. Hey, remind me again where you're located. I'm Right now, I'm out in West Virginia in Bridgeport. Um, I retired from the military last year in November, 
and my wife uh, got a job out here. So we've been out here in West Virginia. I can kind of work from anywhere, but um, I suppose it's been a, a couple of years since I've been going back and forth from out here. But yeah, um, in, in West Virginia now. Gotcha. Um, and so let's see, how many years in the military uh, and what did, what was your kind of background in the military? Yeah, so I did almost 21 years. Um, my background in the military is complex, but um, I started as an enlisted guy doing like signals intelligence, which is, you know, um, just think like radios, cell phones, that type of stuff, signals intelligence, exploitation, um, and radars as well. And then I, I kind of pivoted from there to going into the human intelligence realm, which is like, um, you know, sources and that type of stuff. Uh well deployed and doing that type of work but from a technical point of view I, I became a warrant officer about 11 years ago and the easiest way to think about a warrant officer is like a technician um in the military just kind of advising office general officers and colonels on what types of technologies are good which ones are not good how they can be integrated into the unit to be like a force multiplier for a uh, a commander while they're you know overseas or doing their mission in garrison or whatever and uh, uh, the, the kind of warrant officers kind of sit in between. We're not soldiers. We're not, well, we're soldiers, but we're not enlisted men. Uh, and we're also not officers. We're kind of like in between. So if you think about a, uh, the military as like a school, your NCOs are kind of like your teachers, whereas your lower enlisted guys are kind of your students. And then you have your officers, which are like your principals, your vice principals, administrators, that type of thing. Warrant officers would be the guys who are like recommending the curriculum and what books to use and what, you know, that type of thing. Are I the gotcha. technical experts for the military unit. Okay, I gotcha. And so uh, in order for you to recommend those things, you have to be somewhat well-versed in those things. So what kind of training did you guys have to go through? I mean, is it like drone training or is it more like hey here here are a list of educational tactics that you can use to train your soldiers better um so for myself the training that i went through was a lot of technical well there's technical and tactical training but a lot of it was um, computer programming um uh network like network diagnostics understanding how what networks are what their vulnerabilities are how they work um and then on the and, and then there are other disciplines too where i learned other you know uh you know how to go and meet a guy for a meeting and you know in the middle of maybe you know uh, that in, in pakistan somewhere and yeah. arrange a meeting where there's operational security and there's um you know, your, your physical security and you're thinking about all the thir second and third order effects of those things. Um, but I was, again, looking at those types of things from a technical perspective. So the training was vast. There was lots of different, you know, I, we could do a whole podcast on just the training and all of yeah. the stuff that goes into that from the technical side to the operational side and the tactical side and all of that. But um, there was a lot of it there. And uh, I guess if I had to summarize it all, it would be um, you know, lots of learning, you know, coding, code bases, um, network architecture, and then kind of the, the tactical implementation of the exploitation of those types of networks and so on and so wow. forth. So, you know, everybody, everybody talks about how big the United States military budget is, right? And, and we have the biggest, baddest uh, military in the world for a reason. It's because we spend a lot of money on it. And so um, were you able to get your hands on some pretty like 
I don't know whether that's maybe software or or just things like that are just like holy cow, this is mind blowingly awesome. Yeah, so it, I'll say this about the, my experience of the U.S. government. Um, you know, doing on, on that side of the house, some of the stuff I did, you could consider it like ethical hacking. Yeah, and I think my last year, I was an advisor. I was an advisor for a general officer. And, a, and for a colonel that were doing development in what was called the offensive cyber realm. So that's ethical hacking. I believe that year, the U.S. budget for the DOD was something like $750 billion. <laughs> um, and I, I would say that 60% of that budget is judiciously executed, whereas the other 40% is wasted. Yeah. Um, there's some reason it's necessary for waste sometimes. But a lot of times it's just the government is very um, resistant to updating and resistant to kind of cutting the fat. <laughs> but but so so there are cool programs that I worked on and there are cool things that I built. But at the end of the day, it was the ability for me to do the kind of stuff that would be illegal in any other context. I got you. So whether that's breaking systems, breaking networks, um, you know, uh, you know think just you know let, let let your mind wander all of the things that you would want to do if you had you know a free free reign to break as much as you wanted to and that's kind of the role of the military is not to get too deep into it but they have what's called you know title 10 authority yeah and title 10 authority just means you get to break shit yeah um and as long as it achieves the, the goals so yes there were cool tools and there were cool things that we got to use but at the end of the day it was more about the tactics and the operations that we got to engage in that I think really separates us from everyone else. Cause anybody else who, were, who was doing the things that I was doing for my last 10 years, of my military career would have been arrested in any other context. Yeah. So yeah, that, Man. That, that was the best part. That's absolutely crazy. Now, um, you know, I've talked to some guys before who I don't know if I would say they were directly, uh, in the same type of platform that you were in or doing exactly what you were doing, but they did some pretty, some pretty cool things. Um, where where was the balance between like stress and dude this is awesome doing this type like fun yeah so the stress was more on like the family side yeah or not being around my kids when they were young you know i missed the birth of my son um deploying to iraq i think for my second tour to iraq um this for me at least I, i i feel like i'm an outlier in the military because I just tre benefited tremendously from my military service in a way that I think is exceptional um, and really a story that's only possible in the U.S. So, I, you know, I joined from a trailer home in the middle of nowhere, North Dakota, um, where I really had no prospects for my future um, and, you know, got into the military and kind of lucked into some things, which is, again, a whole nother podcast that I could do. About, you know, one of the reasons I got into intelligence work is just because I simply forgot my driver's license at home. So I was signing up to be an MP because I was 16, maybe 17 at the time when I was signing up. And I wanted to be a military policeman and I just simply forgot my driver's license. And I was like, the recruiter's like, well, you can come back next month because we had to go to Minneapolis from where I was from in North Dakota in order to sign up. And I was like, look, I'm not going home for another month. Sign me up for something else and get me the hell out of here. Um, and so to, to kind of answer your question, my military service, I just benefited tremendously. I came out gotcha. with degrees. I came out with certifications. I came out speaking three languages. 
um, I, I came out with a, a wealth of knowledge. And it's kind of one of the reasons why I pushed so hard. You know, when I when I started the company and I was bringing employees on, I was like, look, everything that we're going to do, we're going to try to benefit military people in one way or, or, you know, we could talk about it later, but we do these veterans hunts and that type of thing where we're raising money for people that didn't benefit from my military service. So for me, most of the suck involved in the military was being away from my kids, being away from family, missing things like death of grandparents and, yeah. you know, the, the type of stuff that you would want to be around for. But on the other hand, you know, uh, I, I did, you know, there's, there's, I, I, again, I could fill a whole po podcast with what I thought were all the awesome things I got to do yeah. in the military, breaking things, you know, um, uh, uh, coming up with cool technology to assist the special operations command, um, getting latitude to do all of the kind of like cool stuff that you think for the first five or seven years, I really didn't get to do a lot of cool stuff. It was a lot of motor pools. It was a lot of checking vehicles. It was being a grunt. It was rucksacking around and carrying stuff and, and, and PMCSing vehicles, preventative maintenance and checks on vehicles and kind of just being a grunt. And then I, I kind of fell into getting to do other stuff um, later after I guess I'd kind of proved myself where I did get to do the stuff that I think most people dream about whenever they, you know, a lot of guys when they join the intelligence um, discipline in the military um, dream about the stuff that I did for like the last 13 years. And again, just super beneficial. Yeah. And super fortunate to get all of that. So um, th that that's kind of that's kind of what it was to me. You know, I didn't mind deploying. I didn't mind doing operations. I lived for doing operations. I lived for supporting the battlefield commander. I lived for doing, uh, you know, technical assistance for human intelligence operations, for signals intelligence operations. I used to fly around in airplanes and 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 set up operations for ODA teams and special forces guys to go in and do stuff like really got to get all of the benefits from it. And really yeah. the, the problem for me was just being away from my kids, but I'm making up for that now. So there you go. There, there's always time. There's always time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, 21 years in the military, you step away from it. You're retired now. Um, now how many years ago did you start Spartan forge? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I actually started Spartan Forge while I was deployed to Afghanistan in 2015. So I was okay. still active duty. Um, I, I didn't incorporate, you know, I incorporated the business in 2017. Um, the first name I had come up for, for, for Spartan Forge was called Open Season. Um, and I, I started collecting collared GPS data and dealing with academics and talking to people um, through my experience. I, I was working at the time. I had just gotten done advising um on a development effort with DARPA, which is kind of like the um, mad scientists of the DOD. They just get to think up all kinds of crazy stuff like, hey, you know, let's put a rocket on Mars. Um, they do that type of stuff. The, 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 and so I was working with them and I met some academics and made some inroads to people and uh, had built or assisted and, and supervised the building of other neural networks to benefit the government and the military. 
Um, and it started occurring to me that I could probably do a lot of this stuff with GPS data um, from collar deer studies. So I started collecting, I, I made my first phone calls to academics and talking to people just during downtime while I was in Afghanistan in 2015 um, between operations. Um, I would, you know, just reach out and say, hey, I'm here doing this type of stuff. And I think I could do the same thing. And a lot of academics were willing to share that data. And that's kind of when I started doing that. And I've been collecting it ever since. I just got some more deer data the other day that we're, we're working on integrating to our neural network. So pretty continuous since 2015. Yeah. And so when you first started uh, Spartan Forge, did or, or or the company or what you know that you had before spartan forge before the name tag was it always about forecasting deer movement or did had you planned into going into the high debt the you know the the uh, high definition very detailed mapping and all the other stuff that comes with spartan forge yeah so no i, I wanted to focus on neural networks i always saw spartan forge as a machine learning company there are other things i want to do and i still am doing in my very little spare time in the neural network machine learning artificial intelligence realm that i that i do um and and i always wanted to start the company as a machine learning company i, I still call it a machine learning company um i was i was originally supposed to be working i'd Worked for about two years with another very prominent mapping company, um, you know, the most probably the most prominent mapping company um, and uh, had basically gotten to the point where I was going to sign a contract with them. But then, you know, things came up for me and I didn't, you know, the contract wasn't favorable because it kind of locked me down for many years. Um, and I always thought I want to focus on the machine learning side of stuff. I just need to integrate with an application that's already doing this and then I can help them do it better because a lot of these companies that are out there are just dealing in commodity data. Um, it's just, you know, you can think of them as like, uh, you know, British Petroleum, uh, Amco and, and, and another oil company, like all three of them are just selling oil. They're not, they're not doing anything crazy or innovative with the oil. Uh, mapping data is out there. None of these companies that launch these programs are collecting their own mapping data. They're paying other companies to go and do it um, or to, to, to get the information. So my focus was always, what do we do with this mapping data or how do we improve the lot of hunters by capitalizing on this data and then integrating it with other pieces of data that um, and creating a comprehensive planning and execution picture for hunters a lot like I did with the military. A lot of the programs I advised on the military were uh, multi-intelligence, multi-source intelligence collection systems that presented information to commanders in what's called like a common operating picture. And this common operating picture is kind of like, from a military perspective, it's kind of like a snapshot of what the battlefield looks like and all of the amplifying um, uh, information that's collected and updated so that the commander can look at it at any time and have a pretty good picture of what's going on in their area of responsibility. My goal with anything I was going to do in Spartan Forge was to integrate with another company um, and then kind of show them what else was the art of possible and put it all together in this, you know, common operating picture. Um, and, and Spartan Forge itself now is moving towards that. I'd say we're about 40 or 50 percent of the way there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, my goal was to integrate with someone else. But once I, you know, I did a lot of investigation on some of these other companies 
um, and I don't want to speak out of school on here. I encourage people to do their own um, look into these companies, but I didn't like some of the investors that they had. I didn't like the core tenants or principles of the investors that they had or the leadership that they had, um, whether it was because they were anti-First Amendment or anti-Second Amendment or, um, the, or the, the investors in some of these companies. And then, but I always said to myself, I'll still join with these companies because I'm, I don't want to do this all on my own. Um, but then the contracts were just so litigious and so um, that, you know, they want to do a year long contract with you, then lock you down for not doing anything else with anyone else for five years. Yeah. Um, and I just wasn't willing to do that. So then I then I basically was on the call one day with a guy who who um, was in charge of one of these companies. He was the um, president, I believe. And he just kept telling me, like, look, just come with us, do the do the map, do the neural network stuff. Let us worry about mapping. You don't want to worry about mapping. Mapping is really difficult. And he said that like three times to me on the call. And by the end of the call, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do mapping. Anybody who says it's, <laughs> anybody who says it's that difficult that much must be lying. Yeah. So I went and looked into it and I was like, this isn't difficult at all. The difficult part's the machine learning part. So that kind of led me to where I am today. Yeah. All right. So you've used terms like machine learning and neural, uh, neural, network. neural network. Yes. Yeah. So for a dumb old deer hunter like myself, explain what that is. Um, so a, a neural net, uh, the simplest way to think of a neural network is that it's a computer system that, um, recognizes patterns in data and then can make predictions on those patterns. Gotcha. So it, the reason it's called a neural network is because it's inspired by the structure and the function of the human brain. Um, so in a neural network, there's like layers of neurons and each one of those neurons become weighted based on the data that you show it. So the, the simplest way to think about this as is you know and i'm going to kind of jack this up but i'm trying to make the analogy work if you have like three ways that you travel to work from your home to work if you have like three routes that you take you can think about that like a neuron like a structure and say over the last year your time in the car is measured every time you drive a certain route or a different route um you could have a machine look at that and say well over the past year what was the most efficient route when it was raining, what was the most efficient route when it was sunny? What was the most efficient route during this time because there was traffic or this time when there wasn't traffic? And then that neuron gets weighted. Um, and then and then in the future, you can look at all of those conditions and then make an informed prediction on what route you should take to work based on past circumstances. So a neural network is just millions and millions and millions of those neurons informing a decision based on patterns. Um, and it's the same way that like the human brain works, the human brain, we're, we're just pattern, we're just really sophisticated pattern recognition machines. We recognize colors like RGB and we recognize um, personalities and we recognize patterns of other animals and our environment and what things look like. And those patterns um, are, is, is, is the, comprises the structure of the brain. So in neural networks, you are just making new neurons based on other data so in this case the first network that i made was or myself and my founders made was based on um caller gps data to inform those neurons so the the during the the training the neural networks given a set of input um and corresponding desired outputs or it, you ask it for what you what you're getting from it and then you can measure it and its success based on other data sets so say i get a bunch of caller deer data from ohio deer 
um, and I make a neural network for Ohio, um, or for I've made it for other states, and then I'll get data from somewhere else, um, and then I'll wait and see how similar those deer move or how un dissimilar those deer are and how they move, and then I'll make another network based on the new data. But I can test the old networks based on the new data. So it's it's that that's the I, I'm I hope I explained that well because so it's. We it's kind of difficult is this would this would this be an accurate statement um basically what you have is just a ton of data and you're organizing it in a in a way that people can can find they can see see it and, and find patterns in it yes exactly well okay. the machines recognize the patterns and then they try to prescribe the patterns to people gotcha um the most difficult part of any neural network is the is the data collection yeah um having a enough data to do it like i could teach you um how to make a, a convolutional neural network in an afternoon um the, the algorithms have been around for a long time it doesn't take a ton of coding experience to actually do this part google's made a lot of it very easy through a program called tensorflow so you you can do it on your own it, the difficult part is getting the requisite amount of data to train it gotcha all right so um when when we first talked, you know, as a deer hunter, I, I, I live in Iowa. You, and just for uh, conversation purposes, you just mentioned Ohio, right? And so I live in, in Iowa. How does deer movement in Ohio or any other state, like what does that have to do with me here in Iowa? And how, how can I look at that data from different states and go, hey, you know, and this is, this is talking about predictive deer movement at this point. But why does deer movement in Ohio matter to me in Iowa? This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Sure. So there, there's a few ways to answer that question. The first way to answer that question is they all are all the same species. So when you have the same species, there are evolutionary underpinnings that kind of are in every animal that are the same, at least from birth. And the only way that you can get rid of them or change them is through a very harsh conditioning. Um, you can think about it like you, like, what does Dan Johnson have in common with a guy from Africa? Yeah. Well, if I throw a baseball at either of them, even if the other guy's never seen a baseball, they will generally flinch and throw their hands in their face as the first reaction. Um, and that comes from like a very deep part of the lizard brain that every human has. So reactions to stimulus are going to be the same across a species regardless of where the species lives so with deer in the same way the 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 reaction to weather events um the or to what weather events and how it influences deer and deer movement or the responses to things like drought or um uh, different types of factors are, are going to be the same at some level or at least we know it's going to influence the animal at some level in the same but the difference has to become, and the reason why a neural network is important to use in this is because the neural network can look at 50 pieces of input data and say, well, a deer in Iowa and Ohio are pretty similar. 
But when I'm looking at this from North Carolina, you know, what, you know, the amount of time that that adverse weather affects deer in North Carolina versus Ohio are not the same for different types of the year. So for a a three day rainstorm is going to affect the deer in um, North Carolina differently than it would affect the deer from Ohio. But what the neural network knows is that it affects both. So it's just the, the easiest way to answer that is the predictions differ and, and ba basically based on where you are latitude and longitude wise in the US based on stressors in the environment differently, but it affects them all just differently. And that's the role, the proper role of a neural network. You would never be able to get some a person to recognize all of those nuances. You'd have to hunt your whole life first just to understand deer in an area accurately. But then to understand deer in different areas accurately in different places and what gets them going or what doesn't get them going or moving or all of those things would be an impossible data task for a human to carry out. So that's the proper way for a neural network to, to, to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff and find out what what in a weather forecast is actually going to impact deer movement and how. Okay. So I hope that kind of answers that question. Yeah. Also, by the way, I have no short answers. So I appreciate <laughs> I, I apologize to everybody in the area, but you know, this stuff is very um there there's a lot going on here. And when I answer questions, I'm trying to be as accurate and as data science oriented as possible, but still presenting a palatable product for a podcast. Yeah. Um so I, I hope I can manage that tension. Yeah. Okay. And so you know, um positioning off that then all right we're still talking about predictive deer movement um how do i the hunter use everything that you've just said I, I i download your app i start to use it how do i use it and how do i use it properly so for, um there are a variety of different ways to use all of the features in the application but just focusing on the neural network um, you should think about it as in general deer movement. You shouldn't think about it in specific. It's not going to help you. It'll help you, but it's not going to, it's not something I would use biblically against like a five, six or seven year old buck. Because the one thing I've learned from looking at all of the GPS data, and I've looked at tons and more deer data than I think probably everyone, anyone's ever looked at. I, I'm not sure I've met somebody who's looked at more individual deer and their movements and what affects them. One thing I can say um, empirically about it is bucks, just none of them are the same and all of them are different for different reasons. Um, so when it comes to like using my neural network for a buck, especially a mature one, you're going to have to kind of allow it to or to try to understand how it influences that deer and when it's correct and when it's not correct and then try to use it but more use it for just general deer movement. So if you're just out trying to schwack a doe or you're just out trying to see deer or you're taking a kid out with you or you're trying to correlate movement with deer cameras and other things, then the neural network's super handy. But there will never be a network, and it's why I kind of laugh to myself whenever I see these other predictive networks where it's like, hey, I'm, I'm Joe so-and-so hunter. I've developed a neural network for deer that's going to get you the biggest buck no matter where you are in the US. It's like none of them are the same and there's no way anybody, one person could develop a neural network that's gonna help you kill a buck or that's gonna accurately say every deer in the woods is gonna stand up at, you know, you look at some of these other options like 
you need to be in the woods at 1.45 p.m. today. And so you think about that and a lot of people get excited and they're like, all right, I'm running into the woods at 1.45. But then you sit and think about the data, the proposition of the data. And it's like, so wait, this thing is saying that every deer in the woods is just going to be moving at 1.45. That's not possible. Right. Um, so, so what the hunter needs to understand with a neural network like mine is, is that it's got thousands of years of deer data. And what I mean by that is if one deer wears one collar for eight years, that's eight years of deer data. If three deer wear three collars for eight years, that's 24 years of deer data. I've looked at, you know, thousands of years of this deer data. And so the, the, what the network has sussed out from that is you basically have three types of movement that categorize deer movement. And that is during the daylight hours, they're going to be staying in their bedding areas. They're, they may move out to transition areas or they could be anywhere in their range. And those are kind of the three buckets. Anybody saying that they have a network that predicts any better than that is not being honest with you. And the reason is because after all of this deer data, that's about as good as it gets. So you can think about that as it, the value proposition for a hunter could be when I'm looking at the neural network, the neural network's going to tell me generally deer are going to be staying close to bedding during daylight hours today, or they may move out into bedding in the staging areas or into a scrape line, or they may be just outside of bedding areas or it could be they're what we call full range and the way that a neural network looks at full range is if you are driving by a field every day to work where you never see deer then all of a sudden there are 21 deer in that field the the neural network would call that a full range day in other words deer are out there moving much more aggressively than they normally would um and there's a litany of factors that that influence that um and that's kind of the best that you can hope to get from what would take you, you wouldn't have enough humans observing deer for a month, enough time to get that any more clear on that data so right. um that and that network that we've developed predicts accurately still only at like 66 67 percent of the time so and i'm very clear about that because i'm not trying to oversell somebody or give somebody snake oil on something but you're getting two-thirds of the time you're getting an accurate prediction on what most of the deer population will be doing Gotcha. Um, when it comes down to patterning individual bucks or going after any individual bucks, you might find some, it might inform the neural networks. The neural network might inform you some in saying, hey, generally, whenever it says core area day, my buck's not leaving bedding. Yeah. And, and so that's something I would tell people to look at at a one-on-one -on -one, um, instance, because again, I'm not going to sell them snake oil and tell them that this thing's far better than it is. It might not be great marketing, but I can sleep at night. Yeah. And so, you know, I've talked with just about every predictive deer um, hunting model app, whatever you want to say, that's currently out there. And for the most part, there are there are some some um, commonalities. There are some uh, similarities between uh, yours and some of the other ones that are out there. But and and you kind of there just mentioned the you know, there's like a handful of things that are really, th that go into the equation that predicts deer movement. Um, the word algorithm pops up in, in some of this and how, how the out, how certain apps pop out what days to go hunting and what times to go hunting and things like that. If I said to you, I have 40 years of hunting experience and I kind of go in and break down what my hunting experience has been 
in certain conditions in certain times a year and I implement that into my algorithm, does that benefit the, al- the, the, the output of data at all? I would say in that area where that person has learned and influenced and been able to control that environment um, and set up, you know, they're, they're obviously very, um, you know, people that make those types of networks probably know a lot about their deer on their property. Um, but again, what moves deer on their property where they've learned or where they've looked at these things is not necessarily what's going to get move, deer moving in Saskatchewan or upper New York or um, in Florida which is why we collect this data from all over the U.S. because um, the factors that get deer moving in Florida are not the factors. I'll give you an example. In Mississippi, relative humidity um, and humidity in general is, bears a factor on deer movement. It has almost no factor on North Dakota deer or Minnesota deer. Um, it doesn't change the, the, it doesn't affect one way or the other really that I can see in the data on what gets deer moving. Um, another one that's is interesting. Rain. Yeah, it, it, it's just it depends on the state that you're in and when I'm looking at the data. But then also um, when you start getting into areas, you know, one of the one of the things that affect your movement the most is rainfall um, in Alabama, for instance. Um, I've been saying this for a couple of years now. If there's a light rain, I would be hunting all the time. It seems to really get deer moving down in those areas. And I, you know, I've talked to a lot of academics about this, and I think one of the reasons is because they have flash flood scenarios, um, and I think it it helps the deer if they're dynamic during rainfall to make sure that they're not getting washed away or something else. Um, and it may be that they just have an evolutionary mechanism that kind of keeps them moving during the rain yeah. because you never know what's going to happen. Whereas again, um, that where in flatter areas or in the Midwest where flooding isn't. Um, the problem in a specific area outside of like the Red River Valley, um, they, the deer don't react to rain like they do um, in some place like Alabama. Um, gotcha. and, but then again, um, in a place like um, the mountain country in the Northeast, um, PA, North Carolina, the Blue Ridge Mountains and out West, um, you'll see factors like cloud cover and thermal generation affect deer movement. Uh, much more deer in the northeast need reliable thermal thermal generation and in order to scent check areas and they need reliable um, cloud cover in order to understand how the wind is going to shift or be different as a result of movement especially in pressured areas those things really change how nothing will get a deer moving in pennsylvania like a drastic wind shift um the drastic wind shift especially among mature deer um they might not move far, but they will move when wind shifts because they want to be in an area, especially when they're bedding, where they can take advantage of the wind direction and thermal generation and the sun's placement in the sky so that they can smell everything around them. Um, if you have a consistent wind, that's the normalized wind for that year. You're not going to see a lot of deer, daytime deer movement in pre-rut or you know mid-October in Pennsylvania, yeah. whereas wind direction in really tight agricultural country doesn't affect a ton. It doesn't the deer don't have to move as far and they're kind of in their shelter belt or their fence row um, and they're not going to walk across that beet field or that uh, soybean field and expose themselves just because the wind has changed. Right. So, again, that that's kind of what I'm getting at with the neural network is I'm able to take this data from all over the country and all of those factors I just talked about are fed into these algorithms and then the network can predict the most accurately based on where it is in the U.S. Gotcha. All right. Uh, and so... 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You got the the, the predictive deer movement uh, portion of this, right? And it sounds to me like that's just continuous, always learning, always improving model that there's no end to it. It's just a continuous trying to make everything better. Now, when it comes to mapping, right? Um, and, and, you know, you said the, the guy said it three times in a row. So you thought, well, he's wrong. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do it myself. And so you started working with uh, mapping. And it sounds to me like from what I understand, getting things like landowner data or satellite imagery and things like that is fairly easy to do. What what makes then Spartan Forge's maps stand apart from maybe the other apps that are currently on the market? Sure. So there's a couple of things there. Um, the, the first, I think, is just the presentation and the user interface and the user experience. Um, we are trying to allow hunters, you know, we have five to 15 centimeter imagery for about 45% of the U.S., what that means is if you have a five, the easiest way to think about it is if you have a five centimeter object on the ground um, and you fall into that coverage area, you should be able to see it through our mapping. That's, you know, hundreds of times better than what is currently on the market with like one to three meter imagery. Um, and we just made a value proposition and investment from the beginning to invest in that type of stuff and work with these companies from the very beginning. Um, whereas it might be cost prohibitive for a very large company to enter into that agreement, um, especially up front, because of the, of the amount of user base that they have is really what these companies are interested in. Um, but also we provide them data services back in other ways that um, are kind of proprietary, but um, essentially we have these relationships with these companies, but then we, we also present different maps from different times of the year. And we also go historical. So on that data, we go, we can go back 14 years on most of it some of it is 10 and then a very small subset of it is seven years so you can go back and look at how the landscape has changed over time again in that high high resolution um form factor but then we present other three other data layers that are one to three imagery through one to three meter imagery layers um throughout throughout many times of the year so no matter where you are in the us you're going to have some good maps um and it's not just going to be one map and you get what you get um, there's going to be these different types of ones, but then also the way that people can interact with them and set up their maps. And for instance, inside of our app mapping application, if you want to look at, um, if you want to set your map up so that you have slope angle shading on LIDAR with property over it, you can make that custom map in what we call our Lambda layer. But then if you want to switch right back to an aerial, it's just one swipe of the thumb. Whereas in other applications, it's going to require, you know, between five and seven clicks and in some instances, 15 clicks. So you're spending a lot of time when you're in the field um, changing things up and doing things, whereas in our application, it's a very quick movement. Um, and, and that really comes from my military background and in, in understanding that um, from a design perspective, I want people to have to physically interact with the application as little as possible in order to get what they need. 
so that they can focus on what's around them and not having their nose in the phone the whole time they're in the field. Right. So that usability yeah. and the way that people interact with maps and set them up. Um, but then also what we're gleaning and learning from the mapping. And for instance, here shortly, we'll have out this um, one meter LIDAR imagery for most of the US. Um, and it's very high quality LIDAR imagery where you can see in some instances, you can see cow trails on the ground or you can see benches on the side of hills where you'd never be able to see it with topo or anything else um, to really inform scouting or you know, even where there's like a seep on the side of a hill. Um, this is stuff that people generally don't have access to or haven't seen in the past. And we've made a large investment in getting that out there. So again, it's not just the data or the access to data, it's how it's presented and then how we show the hunter that this you know benefits them from a targeting and hunting perspective. Gotcha. All right. So my next question then uh, revolves around the data that you actually collect from the user that on how they're using it. So, so let's just compare me and you, for example, um, you may use an app and you may do all the predictive deer movement and you may check your weather and, and you may um, still drop pins and then look at uh, the the uh, landowner data and do all that stuff. Whereas I may go into it and use it and just go, Hey, I, I'm only using this just to drop pins and that's it. Um, how do you use that information on um, to take the next step into like the, the best usability for the end user or to uh, change or update the app based off that information? So I, we don't take a lot of user data and look at that. So when I'm looking at aggregated data to understand like where I might um, pay for more updated imagery, because like the imagery that I talked about before is very expensive. Um, so I'm, I'll look at user distribution and see where my largest user bases are and then add imagery for those user bases first. That's the really high quality stuff. I'll still give all of the other, um, the rest of the United States, all the other uh, imagery repositories. But then I'm also looking at what pieces are being used the most or used the least, and then interacting with profet, my, my, like the pro staff, the guys that we work with, to understand, hey, you know, I, I see people aren't using journal, the journal in the application as often as they're using historical imagery or vice versa, and then try to pull the string on that and understand why. But again, the way that we architected this application is, if you're just the guy that just wants to see where your property lines are and you just want to drop pins, like that's all there and the weather is there and you can just use it in that really simple fashion. But then if people go on like our YouTube um, and, and watch some of the videos, which I encourage people to do when they sign up for the application, um, you can get really deep and really, you know, into the details of the data where you can understand, you know, what's the predominant wind during the second week of November in Kansas. Um, in this part of Kansas. So you can get really deep into it. But we try to build the application so it can be as simple as you need it to be or it can be as complicated as you need it to be. And you can dive as deep into the data as you need to be. But we're constantly looking at that to see what's being interacted with, what's being used, and then understanding from the user where they want to see improvement. And I think that's another thing that separates us from the from other companies is that if you message us on social media or ask a question about deer data or about a feature or a feature you like or you don't like or whatever, um, my marketing guys will be the first ones to see it, but then they'll direct it to me and I'll be the ones who are answering those. So I spend almost two hours a morning just interacting with users um, to, to kind of pull the string on the second order of that data where 
um, people are, are interacting with me and I'm trying to understand exactly what it is they want to see for the user. Whereas I don't think you see that in a lot of other companies where, you know, the CEO uh, um, and, and the uh, lead architect of the solution is interacting with guys um, at the tactical level to really understand what they need. So that's just a kind of a cross section of yeah. how we do all of that. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So you guys, uh, let's just do this. Why don't you tell us what's new on the app? Maybe over the last six months, um, what you guys have introduced, any changes or updates to the app? Yeah, so we introduced the web app, um, and that's going to be updated here shortly. I've, I've shied away from doing dates now because there are things that I don't control, like the app store and approval and that type of stuff. So we're trying to release it here very soon, but we've released the web app. You can transfer your points on there from other applications if you want, but then you can also just have a different display to look at the mapping, to look at the areas, to look at you know, to do all of the planning and stuff. So um, if you're at work or whatever and you got a lunch break and you want to hop on and look at the maps, you can do that and drop points and that syncs up with your application. But then secondly, um, we've released uh, some, you know, slope angle shading, which again, we, we were very meticulous and I just encourage people to look at it and kind of like our competitors, the way that we built that and architected it makes it extremely accurate in a way that I don't think other people have thought about. Um, and we've uh, it, we've updated our five to fifteen centimeter imagery. Um, we have um, on our custom map layer. We've updated the way that people interact with that and can set up custom maps, um, and, and then be able to, as I said before, um, reference those more simplified maps. So it's like you can either click the maps button or you can swipe through. But there are basically four maps or four layers. There's a topo layer, a lidar, or, um, a aerial layer a hybrid layer and then your custom layer and you can switch between those very quickly um we have our intel tab that we're constantly updating that gives you you know pal palatability for um forage that deer feed on in the area the, the buck to doe ratios for county by county the um the state draw odds the state um the state uh, hunter population the distribution um, popular tracts of land. That's all stuff that we've added in the last year. Um, and then going into this off season, we're adding that LIDAR data that I talked about before, which is for about 65% of the U.S. has one meter resolution. We added, um, uh, we have a functionality called Blue Force Tracker that will also be out this spring, which is essentially say you and your son are hunting the same land together. You can him and yourself download the Spartan Forge app, um, and then you click your property, and then you say add a Blue Force Tracker team. You put your son's email in there, and now anytime you're on the property together, you're auto sharing location and you're auto sharing points. And you can do that with other buddies if you're scouting large tracts of public land together, or if you're granting access to somebody else to hunt your property. You can tell them, hey, when you're on the property, I'm going to invite you to this Blue Force Tracker team, so I know when you're in my backyard hunting, so I don't send my kids back there. Yeah. Uh, that will be out this spring. Um, and then we've also partnered um, with Eastman's um, and their Tag Hub data. Um, it's going to be coming out in, in the application here very soon, um, where you'll be able to look at state-by-state -state draw odds um, and count down to the county level and understand um, your likelihood of where and when you'll, you can draw a tag. Um, but, and then we're going to be coming out with some neural networks and algorithms in the future that will help optimize for people that are trying to do um, um, tag draws um, throughout the U.S. And then um, we're finally trying to put out some of our core wear features 
Um, we were trying to get those out late last year, but we just realized some problems with the data that we've been fixing over the spring and the summer. So essentially what that'll be is um, just new ways to look at topography and things that, enter, that influence deer movement. It starts with this LIDAR layer that I'm talking about, but then it'll eventually get to the point where you can just highlight a piece of ground and the neural network will um, uh, recommend places that you should scout. Um, oh, wow. So th that those things are all coming out here um, and we're hoping to have, or no, we will have, we will button the product down by probably 15 August. So the application that you have going into the hunting season will be the application that you have throughout the year. You know, we've only been out for a year. So last year we had to do in season updates, but we're gonna stay away from that this year. Um, and to just make sure people have the, the final product once the season comes. And uh, we've got a couple of other tricks up our sleeve for stuff that we're gonna get out before now and then, but that's kind of the brunt of the offering. And okay. we're also, you know, at the $39 level right now. Um, yeah. We'll probably end up having to raise it five or $10 um, after we put some of these other um, services that I've talked about out, but for people who sign up now, um, it's you know 39 bucks with a 20% off discount. It's like 32 bucks for the year. Um, and, but then we also have a free application that gives you free property data and pins. So if you just want to use the, the the free version of the application, you'll get free property data on there. You shouldn't have to pay for that. You've already paid for it when you paid your taxes. So that's in the free app, and you can drop pins in there and use it that way if you want. Gotcha. Cool, man. And so. Based off of everything you've said in this interview, it sounds to me like you're you're trying to make Spartan Forge almost a one-stop shop app for everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we don't want we don't want to overwhelm the user by putting too much in there. But essentially, you know, when I was planning when I was a whitetail hunter, which I don't have time for anymore, I'm hoping to get back to it here one day. But um, uh, you know, I would be consulting four or five, six apps while I was doing my planning. Um, my goal is to put that all into a one-stop shop and put all that data in the same place um, and kind of push the technological edge and capacity of what data can do for hunters and put it all in a place that looks nice, is easily usable, and highly customizable. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I tell you what, Bill, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and, and uh, BS with us today and, and give us an update on Spartan Forge. It sounds like not only are you busy, but you got a good thing going over there. So thanks again, man. Yeah, thank you for your time, Dan. Have a good one.